Do I owe you an apology for last week? How many of you were here for Sunday school? That's quite, a lot of classes don't have that many every week. <laughs> well, it was my understanding that we would not. In view of that, with Carlene not having any responsibilities at Colonial Heights, because they too had only one service, but theirs was a contemporary service. And the organ is not played at the contemporary service, so she had the Sunday free. So we headed out to Nashville to visit her family, stopping off in Knoxville and worshiping at Church Street Church in Knoxville. And then came home only to learn that some of you were here waiting for me to appear. <laughs> and to you, I apologize. Don Sluter called me on Saturday and asked, and I assured him that there was not to be a Sunday school time. So I should have been sensitive then to the possibility that it might not have been clear. <coughs> anyway, those of you who came, I know you had a great time in fellowship. And it went back in eight. <laughs> went back in eight. Okay, good. <coughs> we have come to the pastoral letters. This is the most difficult time in the life of the church because things are beginning to change. Things are beginning to happen as though they hadn't already. But when the pastoral letters came into a place of prominence, all of the apostles had died. Peter had died. James had died. John had died. Paul had died. All of the major leaders of the church had all died. It was apparent now that Jesus was not going to come back during the time in which they thought he would. Paul thinking that he would come back during his lifetime, but he hadn't come. It was apparent that it was going to be sometime in the future and nobody knew when, but there had to be plans made to sustain the church until such time as Jesus did return. It was at this same period of time after the apostles died, that Christianity separated totally from Judaism. That occurred when the temple was destroyed in 68 by the Romans. The Christians continued to go to the temple. They did not break away from their heritage. They still worshiped in the temple. They kept the temple laws. Now the temple was destroyed. There was no temple to go to. The option was to go to the synagogues, and the Christians were not welcome in the synagogues. Remember, every time Paul went to the synagogue, spreading the gospel, they heard him the first time, and they said, get out of our way, we don't want you here. Paul could not establish Christianity in any of the synagogues. They had to be established outside. So it's understandable that now, at the time in which the temple had been destroyed, that the synagogues would certainly not be open to the Christians because the Jews rejected all of Christianity. So cut loose from Judaism, they became a religion apart from Judaism. That created a problem. You see, Rome enforced their religion upon all the world because the entire world was a Roman world, except for Palestine. The Jews were so difficult to deal with 
Rome learned early on that if you mess around with their religion, you were in trouble. And the Jews were so quick to rise up against the Romans or anyone else who threatened them. So the Romans made an exception with Judaism. They could continue their worship of Yahweh. Rome would not interfere. So wherever Judaism was practiced, the Roman Empire stayed out of their way. Christianity was no longer a part of Judaism. They became the enemy of the Roman Empire. So persecutions began within the early church. But the biggest problem of all was this. Where do you go to find a final answer on the problems that would arise concerning institutional behavior and the belief of the new church? It was always in the hands of the apostles to make those decisions. The council at Jerusalem existed in the home church in Jerusalem with the apostles present, and they made decisions that affected the church. But now there was no longer the home church in Jerusalem. There was no longer the apostles to go to. So the new church established at this time in the latter part of the first century had nowhere to go in order to get opinions based upon beliefs and the polity of the church. Paul anticipated this. He knew that he would soon die. He knew that Christ would not come back while he was still here. So he wanted to give some direction whereby the church could continue on and be protected against the heresies that were beginning to arise. And in order to do that, he wrote three letters. All of the writings of Paul prior to this were written to churches. They were written to address problems that had arisen in the churches. But now these were the three letters were written to individual persons, not to churches. And the purpose of those letters was to say to Timothy and Titus, it's in your hands now. You're going to have to give direction, and I want to give you direction by which you can carry out your responsibilities. Paul laid out in those letters what he considered to be the basic beliefs of the church and the basic structure of the church. We know that in the beginning it was the 12 disciples that had the final word and authority in the church. After a while, the responsibilities became so great that they enlisted deacons to assist the apostles. The deacons were not to have the same position of responsibility as the apostles. They did not have the authority of the apostles. They were helpers. The word deacon simply meant helpers. They were to assist the apostles in the disciplinary and the administrative work of the church. Now they took on a new meaning because as the churches expanded and grew, there needed to be powers in each place to carry on the work of the church. There weren't enough of those who had been chosen by the apostles to carry on their work to do this, but they could be established in each of the congregations, persons to assume responsibility. And so they were named by Paul. 
they would be deacons and they would be bishops. The deacons would be the helpers. The bishops would be the authoritarian figures. They would be the ministers of the day. The role of the elder, excuse me, the role of the bishop and the deacon continued on as the church grew and developed, but it took on a different form as it was been explained by Paul in the beginning. And in most of the denominations that we have today, they have bishops and they have elders within the church and deacons within the church. That is, of the main line that come directly from the apostolic church. John Wesley, incidentally, when Methodism broke away from the Church of England, John Wesley ran into a problem because only bishops could ordain. It had been that way from the time of the earliest disciples. It was called apostolic succession, which simply meant that when one was set aside, the apostles laid their hands upon them and gave them the authority. They, in turn, were, as bishops, had the authority to lay their hands upon others and give them authority. Only bishops could convey that authority. And so the role of the bishop grew stronger and stronger as the church developed through the centuries. When John Wesley had a desire to make the church in America legitimate, he knew that he couldn't do it without bishops to preside. He went to the Bishop of London and asked if he would ordain bishops who in turn could ordain others, and he refused. He could not find anyone within the Church of England who would ordain any of the Methodist preachers. So John Wesley made a decision that has affected Methodism and the Church of England and the Episcopal Church up to this day. John Wesley was a biblical scholar. He knew, as few did, the workings of the early church. He said that in the writings of the New Testament, the word bishop and the word elder and the word presbyter were all the same. They were not three distinct orders. Now, in the Church of England, which is the father of Methodism or mother, Excuse me, you liberated believers. <laughs> there were bishops who were ordained bishops. Under them were elders, priests, ordained for that role. John Wesley said there's no difference between a bishop and a priest, an elder. He being an elder, a priest, <clears throat> said that means I have the power of a bishop. And so he ordained himself the Methodist ministers. Now that's one way to do it. Now of course it separated us from the Church of England because the apostolic succession no longer existed in their mind. But in the mind of John Wesley it was apostolic succession because he as an elder was had the same authority as the one named bishop in the early church. Many denominations do not have bishops or uh, Presbyters, but they do have organized persons within the church for authority, but do not claim to be a part of the apostolic succession. But as far as the early church was concerned, Paul established the bishops and the deacons as to be those in authority of the local congregations. 
Now, in early Methodism, every minister became a deacon before he could become an elder. I was a deacon for two years. During that time, I was on trial. If at the end of two years they said he's not fit to be a minister, they would kick me out. But if they thought I was, then they would admit me into full connection and ordain me elder. And that's how I got to be an elder. That's not the way it is now. The ministers become elders all at once. And the deacons are those who have been designated as helpers, ordained now, but not with the full authority of the elder. Doug became a deacon in this church. He started out as a choir director who was a layperson. And yesterday he performed a wedding, a beautiful wedding in the sanctuary, because now he's ordained deacon. So the changes have come about over a period of time. But in the beginning, it was Paul in giving advice to Timothy and Titus that there would be bishops and there would be deacons in the churches to carry on the work. Having done that, then he warned them about the problems of heresy in the church. From the very beginning, there was the threat of heresy, and why not? You see, there was no Bible the way we have it today. The Bible was compiled many years later. Now, Paul's letters were the only written documents had, that had to do with the development of Christianity, and his were letters to the individual churches as to the problems that arose during those times. And so, the, uh, I lost my train of thought, losing one of my members of my class there. <laughs> the development of the theology, and I mentioned earlier that, the, uh, uh, that Paul was the father of theology in the church, that with the development of the theology through Paul and then Paul's voice being stilled, how does one preserve the truth and keep out all of the heresies that would arise. Well, in the early years of the church, there were many heresies that arose. And the church had to fight against the heresies. And most times we believe that the church made the right proper choices, though those heresies continued to exist and many heresies exist in the church today. But this was Paul's instruction to Timothy and Titus that they keep heresy out of the church, that they preserve the theology so that it would be the proper beliefs on which the church could be built. Timothy and Titus were the two companions of Paul to whom these Letters were written who would have this responsibility of carrying on the work of Paul. Paul met Timothy on his first missionary journey at Lystra. And then on his second missionary journey, enlisted Timothy to go with him on the remainder of his journey. And Timothy remained with him for the rest of his ministry up until the time of his death. Paul looked upon Timothy as his son, his spiritual brother. And uh, <clears throat> Titus was first introduced in the book of Galatians. We don't have a dramatic introduction of Titus other than the fact that he became a part of Paul's entourage. Titus assumed a very important role in the early church in that when Paul went to the 
Council of Jerusalem on behalf of making everyone members of the Christian faith without becoming Jews first, he took Titus with him. Titus was Greek. Titus had not been circumcised. Titus was a leader with Paul. And so when he went to Jerusalem, he took Titus with him and said, here is a case that I'm appealing. A young man who is a deeply dedicated Christian, who has committed himself to Christ, who is not a Jew by birth and has not become a Jew by circumcision, and yet he is worthy of full admission into the Christian society. That was Paul's argument for the Council of Jerusalem. Of course, the real issue that came before the Council on Jerusalem was from Peter, who had the vision from God that everything is clean, that God has created, and therefore none are to be excluded. And it was on the basis of this that Peter himself voted in favor of admitting all Gentiles without their first becoming Jews. So Titus played a very important role there and remained one of the workers with Paul for the remainder of Paul's ministry. So here were two young men, much younger than Paul, who had been with Paul from the moment in which Paul began his ministry up until the time of his death, in whose hands he felt that he could put the responsibility of the church. Now, in last week's lesson, Paul admonished Timothy, and the first Timothy is the scripture from which our lesson comes. First Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus are the three pastoral letters. Paul says, assure the people that everyone is accepted of God, no one is excluded. This was the message that Christ brought into the world. It was a message that was given to Paul particularly, that God is not a God of any particular group of people. He is God of the entire world. Everyone is yearned by God to become a part of his church. He said, be assured that Jesus died for all humanity, that the church is open to all humanity and is not to be restricted to particular groups. Timothy was stationed in Ephesus. Eusebius, who is a, one of the early church fathers, a historian of the first century, said that Timothy became the first bishop of Ephesus. Titus was assigned to Corinth. He would carry on the work in the church at Corinth. And according to Eusebius, Titus became the first bishop of Crete. So they continued to carry on their responsibilities outside of what Paul had assigned to them in the beginning. But at this period of time, it was of vital importance to Paul that they preserve the fact that Christianity is open to everyone but there are certain beliefs that must be preserved and held on to preserve those beliefs. Now, at Ephesus, there was an intrusion of false doctrine. Paul was aware of that, and he addressed that, in particular naming two persons who had tried to bring a false doctrine into the teachings of Christianity. And he warned Timothy against those two. This would be a problem always in the early church of those who wanted to introduce false doctrine into the mainstream. And so the first letter to Timothy was 
to assure that they addressed the problem of those who would bring in false doctrine and that they would impress to all people that Christianity is for the entire world, for everyone, not for any select group. Now, in today's lesson, we get down to it. You know the story of the, the fellow who built him a new concrete walkway in front of his house, beautifully done, they brought in the best craftsman, he smoothed it out just perfectly, and then he went in to eat lunch, and he came out, and a dog had walked along through that fresh cement. And the man walked over and kicked the dog with all of his strength, and the dog ran away yelping, and the neighbor said, I thought you liked dogs. And he said, I love dogs in the abstract, but not in the concrete. <laughs> Well, we all love prayer in the abstract. But when it comes to the concrete, it raises some problems. Because Paul said, pray for everyone. Pray for your enemies. Now, that's hard. When you have cause to resent someone, when you have been wronged when someone you love has been wronged. Your first response is to build a hostility between yourself and those persons. How can you be hostile towards someone and pray for them at the same time? But this is an assignment that Paul gave very strictly in the very beginning that you are to pray for everyone. Only when there was a strong prayer life in the early church, when people were joined together by their praying for one another, only then could the church survive. And that's true of the church today. One of the real powers of this class is the fact as every class session begins, we lift up the names of people who are in need and we want to pray for them in those needs. I've had so many people say to me, I never dreamed of the outpouring of love until I went to the hospital or someone they loved went to the hospital. I got cards, I got telephone calls, I got visit, I got food. I never dreamed that there was an outpouring of caring as I experienced in that class. Now, we who are fortunate enough not to experience times like this don't realize how much is being done for those who are in need. But this class is fantastic. I haven't said it before, have I? I've never been with a group of people that I consider more nearly the prototype of what a Christian ought to be than the members of this class. I say that after serving churches for 40 years. If I'd had a church in the beginning made up of people like this, I would have been a bishop many times over. <laughs> a long time to get you and I'm not going to turn loose of you. <laughs> but we pray for one another. We really care about one another. And that's what the church is. And Paul insisted upon that and the priority in his letter to Timothy make prayer the central focus. Make prayer the foundation. And don't let those prayers be selfish. Let those prayers be for everyone. Even those persons you hate. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And he said, pray for those in authority over you. 
Pray for the rulers everywhere. The writer of our lesson said, Now how do you pray for Osama bin Laden? And gave some alternatives. <laughs> One of them, pray for an early death. <laughs> that would certainly serve God in the world, but that's not the way that we would pray. How do you pray for someone like that? Well, that's what we have to resolve within ourselves. How do we pray for those in authority? It was long believed that the role of a king, the role of a ruler, was by divine authority. God had chosen these persons, and still the divine right of kings is held by some as the king's right conferred by God. And that's why the king of England or the queen of England always has a religious ceremony with the Archbishop of Canterbury conveying the authority from God upon that ruler. We are to pray for rulers. We are to pray for those for whom we have reason to be separated by hostility, by acts that were unworthy. And then, of course, praying for one as a brother as each of us individually have needs. I personally think that the real power of the church lies in the prayers of the people. Where there is prayer, there is power. Because that is our connection to God. We can talk about it, what we can do among ourselves, all we want to. But to enlist God's assistance, God's blessing, comes through prayer. Jesus says, ask. He didn't say wait. He said, ask, as though God waited to be asked to do something. I've used this illustration before. There's nothing in the world that I wouldn't give to my children. But I'm not going to sit back and parcel it out. But when they come and say, I want something, if it's worthwhile, I'll give it to them immediately. But I'm not going to impose it upon them or to answer that need without being requested to do so. The same with God. Jesus said, ask God. Tell him what you need. Ask him for things. He wants to give them to you. But so oftentimes we don't really understand what prayer is meant to be, and it oftentimes becomes repetitive as we pray the Lord's Prayer, and sometimes we don't even pray at all. More things are wrong by prayer than this world dreams of, said Tennyson, and many others have repeated that same admonition. If the church is to survive, if the church is to grow, Paul says to Timothy, let prayer be at the very heart of it. And the prayer is to be for everyone because everyone is claimed by God as their children. This is the beginning of the pastorals that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. And we have just a few minutes if you have any questions or any response you would like to make to any of this. For those of you who are visiting, they're not running out on me. They're going to sing in the choir. <laughs> but if you don't sing in the choir, you can't leave. <laughs> Any other comments or questions? <laughs> there he goes. <laughs> Thank you, Van. That was a great lesson to start us off this year.